Welcome to the Multiply Network Podcast, a podcast created to champion church multiplication, provide learning, and inspire new disciple-making communities across Canada. Hi, podcast fam. Welcome to the Multiply Network Podcast. My name's Paul Fraser, and thanks for tuning in today. Really excited to share this interview I did with Dan Collado. He's the Academic Director for Aboriginal Bible Academy and also serves in our POC Mission Canada ministry, helping give leadership to our national focus on Indigenous peoples. I feel this is such an important conversation, an important interview, uh, not just to listen to, but really to lean into as it relates to our Indigenous peoples. Uh, we're, we're going to actually do a follow-up interview with him and some other Indigenous leaders later, but this interview lays such a good foundation on how Indigenous communities think, act, believe differently than the typical Canadian majority mindset. I'm telling you, I learned so much from this interview, and if you are a leader in church world, you need to hear what Dan has to say. He says it in humility, in grace, with patience, and optimism. You see, we need to be about helping our Indigenous peoples, but how we help makes all the difference. You're going to love this interview. Stick around right to the end, and it's coming up right now. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the Multiply Network podcast. Hi, Paul. Thank you. So glad, so glad to have you. Excited to talk with you about a little bit of your ministry experience, your passion, and your heart for Indigenous people. So why don't you uh, give us a short summary, a short history of uh, what you've been doing, and then we'll jump into where you're at today. Sure, sure. Um, I know when um, you think of uh, involvement um, concerning Indigenous ministry and the experience that a person might have regarding that, I usually begin by by answering that um, um, with stating that I'm um, actually status First Nation uh, myself, but that actually had nothing to do with my uh, getting involved with Indigenous ministry. Um, right. I was thinking my my passion and involvement with Indigenous ministry really stems from, I think, a, a wrestling match that I had with God. Um, it was the early 90s, and um, I graduated from EBBC at the time, and I majored in missions. I had designs of um, being, you know, a missionary overseas somewhere. Um, and uh, certainly back then, I mean, that was the idea of what a missionary meant was being overseas. But the doors didn't open for various reasons, and it kind of sent me spiraling uh, a bit and kind of questioning God, not so much about my calling, uh, but just wondering, all right, Lord, well, if not overseas, then then what and where? And so I, I couldn't really see myself um, back then, you know, in some traditional pastoral role. So I, I felt like my spiritual wheels were spinning a bit and there wasn't a lot of traction. So I, I remember getting down to business with God. It was, it was the late, uh, late, uh, 1992, it was either December of 92 um, or January of 93. And I, I had finally completely surrendered and I made this commitment to him. And I told the Lord, I said, I am willing to go to literally uh, any place where there's a need. Wow. Um, and I said, 
the next door that opens, um, I'm going to walk through it. Um, and so I said, you know, if, if it's not your will, Lord, then you're going to have to be the one that closes it uh, because I'm committed to go. And so long story short, uh, within that same year, within that same time frame, a um, few weeks even, um, through some various godly, appointed, uh, or divine appointments, I really, uh, I found myself, along with my wife, of it was about just a little less than three years at that time, um, we were pastoring in a small fly-in First Nations community in Northern Ontario. And so to this day, I continually find myself saying yes to Indigenous ministry opportunities. Yeah, so so talk to us about where that fly-in place is, because I think most people are like, oh, you know, it's probably close to Toronto or something, right? But no, sure. we're though you are north. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, my very first uh, place where where we moved to was in northern Ontario. It was a fly-in First Nations community uh, called Weagamo Lake, formerly known as Round Lake. Okay. Um, they now have. Um, this was after our time there, uh, they now actually have a, a full season road okay. um, that, that uh, kind of connects with, with the all season road um, that ended at Windigo Lake, just north of Pickle Lake. And okay. people familiar with Sioux Lookout area yeah. um, up in there. But um, following that, we then moved to, because apparently that wasn't far enough north, <laughs> we moved to Rankin Inlet, Nunavut. Yeah. And... Um, there we were there for 10 years uh pastoring uh with the inuit there and uh wonderful wonderful times wonderful um moments of being able to to share and, and to see firsthand and experience firsthand you know right. the, the culture and the, the differing cultures between um the oji Cree that were in um northern ontario where we ministered and then of course the inuit with uh with the nuktitude as the uh, the formal language there. Right. And why don't you tell us what you're doing today? So that didn't stop with those ministry experiences. You continue on with Mission Canada. Why don't you talk to us a little about what you're doing there? Certainly. Yeah. Along, um, actually, um, with with Mission Canada, it, it's a part-time role that, uh, that I'm involved with um, concerning Mission Canada and as serving as the um, Indigenous Canadians coordinator. Um, as the coordinator, I, I work with a team uh, from across you know, our various districts, um, helping to champion one of the, the five identified missional priorities of Canada, which are, of course, the Indigenous peoples. And so we endeavor to you know, highlight Indigenous ministry and help yeah. raise awareness to the rest of the fellowship. Yeah. Uh, but my full-time uh, position, calling, um, is in... Uh, my involvement with Aboriginal Bible Academy, right. uh, where I'm the, the full-time academic director. Um, it's a theological training, uh, education training, and equipping uh, center for, uh, for Indigenous leadership development. And so we, we help with the equipping and establishing yeah. of distance training centers across Canada. Yeah, amazing and important work and so grateful that, that, you, that you're doing it. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to doing a podcast with some indigenous leaders like yourself and others uh, in the future. But for our podcast today, I, I do want to take I do, I do want to get your take on what do you think are the biggest needs in indigenous mm -hmm. communities now and maybe in this COVID season? 
Sure. Uh, well, I know that is, uh, it's a huge question. Um, uh, and it can have several, I think, rabbit trails where we could spend right. all day chasing. Um, I, I mean, you, you do have your, your typical kind of headline grabbers, um, you know, where statistically a suicide is an issue. I think right. uh, the last stat that I saw was like six times that of the national average. Wow. Um, this is, of course, referring to, to the indigenous population community. Yep. You know, drug and alcohol abuse also uh, is often a problem. You've got, you know, domestic abuse, which then is, I mean, that's often associated with the substance abuse previously. Um, there's also, um, there's, there's family, uh, there is a family dynamic crisis, I guess you can call it, if you will, because um, half of the the half of the foster children. Let me. I'm trying to to recall it. That I just read it recently. That half of the the foster children under the age of 14 uh, in Canada are Indigenous. Wow. Um, and so you've got you know over half of our First Nations um, children, in particular, in Canada. They actually live in single parent uh, homes. Oh wow! And so, um, but uh, like I say, those you know those things, and we hear those statistics, and it helps us kind of quantify some things. But really, in essence, those those are just symptoms, um, and, and certainly. Um, you know, with the geographical isolation, we've got COVID, um, you know, there, there've been some struggles, um, because indigenous people are such social, uh, people. So the restrictions with social gatherings has had a, certainly an impact. Um, and then being geographically isolated, um, relatively, um, uh, our communities, indigenous communities have stayed relatively safe, um, because of that geographical isolation they've been you know kind of removed from some of the you know the, the particular hot spots that happen in the more concentrated urban areas uh but then consequently because they're geographically isolated if there ever was you know breakouts that that happened of course then they're they're physically distanced uh from um, you know, the, the, the supplies and the services that would be so vital for, for making an appropriate response, right. you know, to, to disease and illness. Uh, I think aside from, you know, some of those statistical things that we, that, that we can measure, um, there's a more subtle need within the Indigenous community um, that I think really cuts, you know, much closer to, to the core. Um, and it's that Indigenous Indigenous people need to have a sense of connection. Um, and that really, right. that, that's the biggest need. Right. Uh, not just, you know, a connection with their family, not just connection with other people. Um, although, obviously, I mean, that, that plays a large role. But it's, it's literally a connection with everything. It's a connection with their environment. The, I mean, the Indigenous person needs to feel connected to, like, all things. Um, mm. I know that this kind of gets us into the weeds a bit, but... Um, like with that question of, you know, what's the biggest need and then, you know, what can the Christian do? What can the church do to help address it? Uh, I think it really begins with the need for the church to understand, you know, how significantly different the typical indigenous worldview is compared to the majority worldview in the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, 
And I, and I think I would submit that this is perhaps been the greatest misstep for for the church, um, not only in our history, yeah. um, but but presently as well. Because um, see, a, a, any other missteps that, um, that that have happened or are happening, they're typically because of um, a, a relative ignorance of the prevailing indigenous worldview. Right. And, and I'm not suggesting in in any way that 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 ignorance is intentional. Right. Um, yeah. But you know, it's just a natural happening of you know when a jor- when a majority you know tends to to share a particular worldview we tend to assume that well everybody adheres to that mm-hmm. um and so i think in order to have a meaningful impact with an indigenous person um with an indigenous community or really with anybody uh for that matter i think you need to have some sense of what are the core values that they hold dear yeah um you know, what's their worldview? Um, the truth is, because I think we all have a worldview. I mean, we all live by a, a certain set of values, right, that, that we use as, you know, a, a baseline, if you will, um, that, that helps determine, you know, our, our particular course of action or the, the, the different decisions that we make every day. I, I really think that the church, by and large, has, has neglected to, to realize just how different the ended the the indigenous person thinks so i mean that just leads to really you know my next question is okay so you know i'm raised in the majority kind of culture context um i have a certain world view what's different than maybe my worldview than the you know i don't i don't know what you call the average or the the typical right. i don't think there is but but what would be different in indigenous peoples in their worldview generally speaking compared to maybe a majority uh mindset sure sure i appreciate you you know wanting to make that distinction i mean because we are talking in generalities um and for the sake of you know clarity to, to help kind right. of come to some general consensus of yeah. of a course of action, you, you know, that's just the, the nature of the beast. <laughs> you yeah. kind of have to talk in generalities. And so what I would kind of describe a, a typical indigenous worldview um, as succinctly as, as I can, and I mean, this is really doing a great injustice to this subject matter, because I mean, there, there are courses that are taught on these things. Um, concerning, you know, an indigenous worldview and the mindset. Um, but for time's sake, um, a, a typical indigenous worldview uh, is anchored primarily on, on one main tenet of, of belief. Now, there, there's nuance to this um, and to varying degrees, each, you know, indigenous person, depending on their, their, their upbringing, um, you know, what, what kind of uh, society that they've been primarily been exposed to, whether they're an urban indigenous person or more rural um, or reserve setting um, uh, indigenous person. Um, typically, an indigenous worldview has this one main anchored tenant, a belief, and it is the idea of having a communal understanding of existence. I guess you, that's how I would describe it. Um, for the indigenous person, what that means is that that every human being 
um, all human beings, not just indigenous, but all human beings. They're, they're seen and they see themselves as part of the environment. Mm. Um, it's not simply that we're all connected as human beings with one another, but that, but that everything is connected. Everything has inf- influence upon everything else. And it's the, the understanding that, you know, that humanity is not at the center. It's not the cog, but it's, it, it's like a spoke in the wheel of their environments. It's a spoke in the wheel of their existence, of their known reality. And so I think um, with that, then humanity has not, um, it's not just that they are to take part in their their environment, but they are to be caretakers of that environment. Mm-hmm. And so that, that leads to this idea of, of communalism, right? It becomes the chief value yeah. um, as opposed to um, individualism, which right. I, I would argue is perhaps, you know, the more predominant worldview here in Canada. If you had to pick between the two, communalism or individualism. Oh, uh, yeah. 100%. Individualism. 100%, yeah. yeah. And so... I think consequently, um, you know, this, this indigenous worldview of communalism, it, it would then give the, the community priority over the individual. Um, but that's not to say, however, you know, that, that individualism is not valued because it is. Um, and, and that's, you know, a deeper conversation that, right. that can be had at, a, at another time. But I just want to contrast, you know, the traditional indigenous worldview with, you know, the the early uh, colonists, um, yeah. which, as I say, is still their worldview is persists as the dominant worldview yep. um, for Canada um, to you know to this day. Um, but early colonial settlers, their worldview, um, it they they championed individualism um, uh, and a pioneerism, um, and so uh, that led. Um, them to kind of see the environment, um, and th- this is important because this is the, this is the biggest distinction: is that this worldview, along with championing a- an individualism, um, it it saw most significantly that humanity was separate from their environment. Um, they weren't together; it was it was separate, and so it, it really led to the seeing. Uh, the environment as more of a of a commodity that could be you know be explored you know subdued or conquered if you will um, and, and it could be used you know for for one's own discretion and so you know the idea that came about from that is the idea of you could you know own land um, um, owning its resources and subduing the the environment um, I think while that was fully embraced, you know, by, by the original settlers and the majority of Canadians today. The indigenous person, for the most part, um, has always maintained a communal understanding of existence. This, this idea of ownership of, you know, something um, outside of, say, your own decisions was owning something outside of that, that, that was foreign. It was never truly adopted like it was with the rest of Canada. And so that at the core is, is, you know, the difference between an indigenous worldview and the rest, perhaps the rest of Canada, you could say. And so I think that, you know, a church or the church uh, as a whole 
who wants to reach, you know, the typical indigenous person or be involved in indigenous ministry in a community, I think is really going to have to come to terms with this worldview and, and what, you know, and kind of like, what does that entail? Right. I mean, um, because the outworkings of this, uh, of this worldview, knowing if an indigenous person has this, this communal sense and understanding of existence that we're all connected that everything is connected um it's going to change how we we interact um and so some of the things that that it's going to mean for the church is that we're going to need to start thinking long term Mm, Um, okay just stop there just stop right there that's where we don't we don't do well (laughs) we want low-hanging fruit short wins lots of wins but to play a long game because because people lose interest if it gets too long if it gets too there's too much to it but i couldn't agree more so you know first of all i i want to i want to jump in you know just to something you said earlier and then come into this playing the long game Dan, I don't know if I've ever heard it explained so well. Uh, the difference, and I know you were taking a, some, you know, as a generalization, and you know, we prefaced it with like it's just, it's so different, even from province to province, even from region to region in that province, the mindsets differ. But I've never heard it explained so well. So I just want to say thank you for doing that. That was. That was just explained so, so well. And so unpack a little bit more now this long game, because I, I, I think this is the key. If we want to right. reach Indigenous peoples and not just like, just say, well, we do, and we collectively nod, and it's like grandma's an apple pie, and of course we're going to say yes, and, you know, but what do we need to do in the long game? Where does it start, and, and how do we do that? Sure. Um, you know, um, so in having this idea of um, needing to, to think long term, um, we need to come to grips not only with, okay, what the worldview of, uh, what the worldview is of your typical Indigenous person, we need to come to terms with, with what our worldview is and what our values are. Um, you know, we, we value efficiency. We, we we value within, you know, our commodity-based type of society. Um, we have a highly efficient commercial type of society. Um, we've become very adept at, you know, that that what I would call a, a transaction, uh, yeah, a transactional um, interaction, right? And, and I'm including the church on this. We um, we're we've learned to be efficient in how to deliver certain ministries right. and certain, right. certain things. I've, uh, I've, you know, I've got something that, that you want, that you need, and I can efficiently get it to you. So, you know, let's exchange services here and everyone's happy. Right. And, and that's the extent of perhaps the relationship and the connection. Um, well, indigenous culture was never, never steeped in that, in that manner. It was never, it was never deeply competitive. It certainly wasn't a waged, based, you know, economy, right. it was trade and barter system. Um, but specifically, it was motivated by cooperative mutual benefit, mm-hmm. you know, born out of relationship. And that was what was important. And it was important because it shared that 
And we go back to the worldview, this, this communal understanding of existence, that we're all in this together. Um, and and that's, that's not to say, I mean, everything was rosy with, you know, with indigenous yeah. communities. I mean, yeah. they had their conflicts, they fought amongst each other, uh, but it was primarily um, um, having to do with, with, with wanting their, their uh, community to, to um, exist uh, and make it through the winter. Um, so the resources were always, you know, typically the issue and, uh, and land um, would be involved with that. And, um, uh, but, um, there was this sense of that we, we are, um, to be motivated by cooperative mutual benefit. Um, not so much a, a conquering or outdoing, you know, yeah. y- your neighbor, you know, f- success for the, for the indigenous, uh, meant to the, the propagation of, uh, of their community, their clan, um, and that they made it through the winter. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for the non-Indigenous person, the, the colonialist, it was um, not just making it through the winter, but being, um, uh, uh, having an affluence. And how do you measure affluence? Well, it was compared to my next door neighbor. I'm doing pretty good. Right. So it was a bit more, um, less cooperative, more competitive. Yep. Yep. Uh, nah, I mean, that led to some amazing things, you know, inter- inventions and, yep. and, and, and what have you. But anyway, um, I, I just, uh, I, I think we as, as a church need to, to understand um, this, this communal relationship yep. is so integral um, to the indigenous person um, and to minister effectively there needs to be a, 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 a full appreciation and understanding of that, that, that this hasn't gone away. I mean, we're, we're talking in generalities. We're talking about something that certainly existed back in the early days and continues to persist. Right. It's why our indigenous people weren't able to be assimilated. It's why they still um, are here and the government had to relent on, on some of their impositions uh, with, with the Indian act because Indigenous refuse to change. Yeah, um, they refuse to become non-indigenous, mm-hmm. and so it is a long game that that we need to, uh, uh, you know, to to keep in, in in mind. One of the things that you mentioned earlier too that I that I thought was really important. One of the missteps you identified was connection. So obviously, understanding this communal uh, mindset this idea of we're all in this together, everyone plays a role, including our land, our environment, uh, all of it working together, and somehow we're connected to it all. And so that's kind of a, it's a, it's definitely a shift in, in our thinking as a majority mindset. So how do we practically, uh, you know, connect with our indigenous peoples beyond tokenism, beyond just like, well, here's what we do. We give money or we do this, but like if we need to put this back on our radar screens as a ministry, um, God loves them incredibly. He, in fact, he loves them as much as he loves anybody and his heart for them is incredible. And we see the hurt, the pain, the brokenness, caused by some of the majority worldview, that mindset over the years. 
And it's not like we're trying to repay something for what happened before, but we want to bring health, wholeness, and healing uh, and the kingdom to do that. Not our ways, not our traditions, not our franchise models of ministry. How do we connect? Okay, so understanding the worldview, uh, being long-term in our thinking. Is there any other practical things that we can do to, to help us uh, reach out and be a blessing to our Indigenous peoples? A- absolutely, oh, Paul. Um, I think, you know, to, to bring some, some good news to this, um, uh, that something I think that I, I would want to, to encourage people with, and that is um, you don't need to be Indigenous uh, to necessarily be an effective uh, and have an effective ministry within an indigenous context. Okay. I mean, certainly it, it helps Yeah. Um, uh, to use, you know, uh, urban vernacular. It, it gets you street cred if you're indigenous. Yeah. But um, you don't need to be indigenous to minister effectively. Um, so one of the key, uh, one of the key elements, if, if we're going to, to impact uh, the kingdom of God um, within the indigenous setting, and within the indigenous community, it's going to take authenticity. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I think it was, it was Teddy Roosevelt, you know, one of the American presidents there in the early 1900s. Um, he coined the phrase um, that people don't care what you know until people know how much you care. Uh, yeah. And I think that the church's attempts to minister cannot be simply a transaction. Oh, you know, you need discipleship. Oh, you need to to be saved. Well, here's a program um, and it can be done or it needs to be done, you know, at this certain time or in this certain way. Um, But instead, there must be repeatable interactions that are anchored in relationship, authentic relationship. I want to be in connection with so-and-so a person or such-and-such a person or such-and-such a a community, such-and-such a a culture, not because I need to teach them something, not because I want to, um, you know, to change them, but I want to be in connection with that because I want to be in relationship. Right. Um, And so that's going to take authenticity. Um, And so we need to balance our, our, our incessant need to be efficient with, with certain ways of how we go about things uh, in order to, uh, uh, to not bypass this, uh, this essential element of authenticity because the, the relationship component cannot be short-circuited. It, it can't be bypassed. Uh, you, you Certainly, I mean, you can have some yeah. short-term successes and things of that nature, um, but you know, if you're talking about actual life change, um, you know, discipleship kind of encounters where we're, where we are helping to develop like disciple making communities within an indigenous context that doesn't happen on on a weekend initiative. Um, And so that kind of leads me to a um, kind of the second requirement, which I actually touched on earlier, and that has to do with longevity. Yeah. Um, you, you've got to be authentic for a long time. 
right. I mean, I mean, you want to develop an effective ministry into an indigenous community, then you've got to think long term. And as you know, as you know, building projects and week long VBS initiatives. I mean, they are useful. They have their place, um, and certainly often as as entry points to that beginning point of the beginning time of uh, of you know, relationship building, but true disciple-making communities really only come about through prolonged, intentional, relationship-based interactions that are repeatable. They happen again, where there is, again, we go back to this worldview, a cooperative mutual benefit. So it's not just, um, to use the vernacular, the white man coming to, you know, to help rescue the Indian. Right. Um, There is this sense of cooperative mutual benefit coming as much for the indigenous person um, to say, you know what, Uh, uh, how can we help you? It's like, how can you feed into us? How can we mutually benefit from our interaction uh, with one another? That is at the core um, of the success um, within indigenous ministry. Um, But, you know, as, as you know, relationships, they take time. And uh, it's just that, you know, for the indigenous person, um, relationship is more important. It's, it's, yeah. it's not what you know. Um, yeah. they, they need to know you. Uh, you know, and I, I love what you're saying there, because, of course, nobody wants to be seen as a project. Nobody, you know, everybody wants relationship, and it's no different here. But I like the priority that you're placing on it. That that has to come first before anything else. Um, one of the things that I think, at least in in, I'll speak generally, that there is a stereotype that our indigenous peoples are just takers, that they don't have this communal mindset, and I think it's so important for for us just to underscore that, that there's a deep need to give as well, that mutual benefit piece. I think gets missed. And it, you know, and I think if we come in knowing that and saying, hey, we're we're here in partnership. We're not, there's not a a leader and a follower. We're here together. We're gonna have more journey thinking opposed to destination thinking. And we just come alongside. Uh, I think that's really important because a light bulb went off for me when you said that's like, oh man, we've got to shift our mindset that that. You know, and it's a wrong mindset, you know. Uh, of course, there's probably, you know, outliers on both sides of the of the thing where there are just takers. And that's no different in any culture, any majority mindset anywhere. Yeah. But there's a but I'm, I love what you're saying. There's a heart to give. There's a heart to participate. There's a heart to be in relationship because nobody wants to be in a relationship where all you're doing is giving. That's right. Right. That's right. So why is it any different? Right? Why is it any different? I love I love what you're saying, and I want to I want to jump into that disciple making community conversation because that's what we're trying to reengage uh, in the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. How can we become a multiplication movement again? And I think you've shared some things that I think are are helpful as we think through uh, having disciple making communities 
on with our indigenous peoples. Any other thoughts, any other things that we can be thinking about? Maybe there's leaders out there that are going, I feel called here. Uh, I'm feeling, you know, a pull. Some of the things you're saying, the Lord's speaking. How do we get disciple-making communities amongst our indigenous communities? Yeah, well, you know, I want to be encouraging to, um, you know, to the church, to our Pentecostal fellowship, um, that, you know, there's, there's amazing potential um, within the indigenous uh, community for, for ministry. Um, I know that our, that our indigenous churches and leadership, um, they're looking for, for opportunities to be, uh, to be in partnership, to be networking, to be in relationship. Um, I know one of um, one of the initiatives um, that I often encourage um, when, say, I, I get a call from a church looking to to do some some type of ministry expression, and they're looking at you know perhaps maybe an indigenous component. Um, of course, we you know we kind of walk through and talk through you know this idea of. Um, if you want to be truly effective, it's going to take time. It's not just one-off and special projects. Um, but not to demean, you know, one-off special projects. They they have their their purpose. They have a certain um, value. Um, but it, it's that understanding of of being um, being in relationship uh, where. Uh, they're recognizing, and I think actually you you alluded um, to it, and is so key concerning the journey. Uh, the, the journey, uh, the journey truly is as important as what we would like to see as the end result. Right. Um, I know in our efficiency uh, focused culture, it's all about getting to the ends, and for the indigenous person, generally speaking, um, the means is just as important. Yeah. Um, you know, so. Uh, the the idea of uh, of sitting down and having a meal and meeting the family is just as important, um, and perhaps is is essentially in the beginning it's more important than what it is that you really want to say yeah. because you'll never get a chance to say it or it'll never truly be heard unless that's good that relationship first that's good. right so yeah. the journey is just as important. Um, and I think that can be somewhat of a paradigm shift for, for some of our initiatives and ministry initiatives. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about discipleship, uh, it really is a lifelong endeavor that we're, that we're referring to. Uh, you know, discipleship isn't a set of special meetings over a weekend or during a season. We're talking about lifelong learning. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's it's unfortunate, but um, you know, we should be seeing um, so much uh, more of a natural progression within the indigenous uh, culture, within the indigenous church culture, yeah, um, than than we than we currently do, uh, because the indigenous culture is, I mean, it is it is perfectly made for this type of mentorship and discipleship where you, where you, you look to a role model and, right. and there's this, there's this journey of walking together. Um, I mean, precisely how Jesus modeled discipleship um, and disciple making what it was supposed to look like. Um, 
the indigenous culture has that in spades. Yeah. Um, but in our anxiousness, um, you know, the, the church from the outside, not understanding that the culture um, at that time, um, you know, came in more as, a, um, you know, it, it, with the sense of needing to, to conquer um, the culture. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, trying to work, um, work um, the, what was perceived as inappropriate, what have you, um, within the indigenous culture and, and Christianizing things. Um, and there wasn't a full appreciation of, of just how developed, you know, the, the society and indigenous society was, because it, it was one of the misnomers, the mistakes, um, you know, the, of the, the, the early settlers and the, the colonists as they came in, they made the assumption that the indigenous was, you know, savage, was yep. uncivilized, yep. Um, and had no idea the robustness of, mm. of the culture and how they dealt with, with decision-making, yep. value system, correction, um, you know, behavior modification, all these things. Um, certainly, there wasn't the robustness that they saw, you know, when they looked and compared it to their own culture, but they didn't need that same robustness because there wasn't the same type of values and, and the aggressiveness wasn't there as it was, you know, because typically an individualistic culture, um, you know, that has a pioneering spirit, it leads to more aggressive behavior, um, you know, and typically then your, your law system and your legal system has to be a little more robust and, and succinct um, and very specific um, because behaviors um, yep. tended to be more aggressive. And so you needed to deal with those things. But in yep. the indigenous culture, um, it wasn't so much. So, uh, but anyway, I mean, that, that kind of got us uh, in a roundabout way. Um, but the idea that, that there is a journey that needs to be walked together. And, yeah. And one of the things, you know, that I think you talked about the misnomers of, of the culture not being civilized, I would also add the spirituality piece was quite robust and quite evident. And, and I, and I think that's one of the, the, you know, again, one of those misnomers, I think there's an openness to spirituality, to God, to the kingdom of God. Um, you know, not always our traditions, but I think Jesus is still very appealing. The teachings of Jesus is still very appealing. As you mentioned, the model of discipleship is very appealing. Uh, wanna, Dan, this has been rich. And, you know, again, looking forward to that panel that, that we can do with you and some others. Um, but just, just as we're closing here today, uh, what are you excited about? You get you have a bit of a national picture. You sit on a national team. You're training leaders locally, but provincially, regionally. What are you excited about? Where are you seeing God work, and where there's even more potential for the kingdom of God to advance with our incredible uh, indigenous peoples? Sure, sure. Um, I, you know, I can look back on on the history, um, church history. There have been a number of significant, very, very significant moves of God in the history of, you know, the Pentecostal Church and the POC uh, within, you know, the indigenous community. Um, now, admittedly, um, you know, I'd have to say there's a bit of a, an ebb 
um, in indigenous church growth within the POC currently. Um, many of our, of our indigenous pastors, um, leaders, um, you know, they're, they're reaching or exceeding, you know, retirement age. And there's definitely a need um, to train and develop, you know, a new generation of indigenous pastors and, and ministry leaders. But I have to say, like, I'm excited. I'm excited um, about what lies ahead. Uh, indigenous people, uh, I always say this, indigenous people make great Pentecostals. They really do. They don't <laughs> need to be convinced. Wow, I agree. The spirit realm, yeah, um, it, 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 and that permits them to be like naturally supernatural, uh, to operate under the unction on freedom of the Holy Spirit as just a natural extension of their relationship with Christ. Um, but further to that, um, they are our first peoples of our nation. They yeah. are were the original caretakers of this land. And if I truly believe this, if we believe in praying for God to bless our nation of Canada and to bless our ministry efforts within its boundaries, then I feel that that blessing in part, it flows through our indigenous people mm. and the relationship that we have with them that yeah. the church has with yeah. them. I think it's so key. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that because I, I believe that too. Um, I, I think God definitely is smiling. I know his heart is broken for, for what is happening in some of our indigenous communities, but as a people, he smiles as a people, he looks at them with great compassion and care. And I believe, as you mentioned, this isn't a leadership crisis, just amongst our indigenous leaders. This is a leadership crisis across the board as our boomers retire and move on into retirement and there's gen xers are kind of that you know there's very few of us right now that are that are in ministry and then of course engaging millennials and younger is the vision moving forward that's no different than for our indigenous peoples as we even think about teen suicide and some of the some of the the brokenness you talked about early on um i want to thank you for just sharing your heart but sharing our you know just with with grace and compassion um and you know i i i'm excited you know as as i hear what you're saying i'm excited again just to re-engage more conversation i think we need to position ourselves as learners uh like i did today and moving forward so uh dan thanks for doing that if people wanted to uh you know ask you some more questions uh, maybe get involved with some of the things you're involved with. How would they get a hold of you? Sure. Well, um, my uh, my email with Aboriginal Bible Academy is director at aboriginalbibleacademy.ca. Okay. Um, so uh, you reach me there. Also, uh, daniel.colado at poc.org uh, uh, is also available um, concerning uh, Mission Canada specifically. Um, and yeah, I can be reached there. You can even, you could even call me. I've got a, a work number. It's, it's at home. Of course, with, with this whole COVID thing, I've been working, uh, yeah. I've been working, um, at home actually long before this, I've been working at home since, uh, uh 10 years ago. Okay. Um, with being distance education and that, yeah. um, but, uh, 613-344-1703. 
Amazing. And, uh, thank you, Dan. People can reach me that way. Thank you so much for jumping on today. We really appreciate it. All right. Lord bless you, Paul. Thank you for the invitation. 